if I ever gonna be a dictator. I'm not gonna kill people, nothing. I just want to have yeah, one application for everybody. Really. Can we do this? And you are free, you can do whatever, just in this application, just one. I don't want Messenger, I don't want WhatsApp, it's too much. Since I came from uh, <laughs> Algeria, I used to use one Messenger only, it was Facebook. And then I joined one group for like work, I had to download WhatsApp, another group for Telegram. And here I came here, I had to do uh, Instagram. Slack. Really. Okay. I would be a really good, cool dictator, but can you do this for me? So th this is the one thing that you wish for for not yourself wish. as a dictator. No, no, not wish. What do you mean, wish? I'm a dictator. I mean, like motherfuckers from now on, one application. Welcome back to Fractured. Actually, I should say good evening. It's really late uh, today when we're recording. Fractured is our informative podcast about the so-called refugee crisis and migration flows in the world. We have our special focus on Europe, but today is one of our global episodes. Extremely interesting, as I assume uh, it will be. As always with me, my co-host, Rashid Galim. Welcome, Rashid. Thank you so much. Rashid, I want to tell you that I got a very interesting comment uh, that our podcast is the most depressing podcast my friend is listening to. Depressing? Yes, because we always speak about very, very problematic right. issues and we do not have solutions <laughs> for those issues. <laughs> well, the solution starts with a discussion. So when we discuss oh. stuff, that's also part of the solution. That's very good. You see? That's very good. I have to, I have to tell her this. So they need to watch this episode. Yes. <laughs> so we're very hoping that maybe you will at least have some good practices coming from our guests today. And our wonderful guests that we have in our studio today is Sula Maveye. Okay, Sula, you have to tell me if I pronounced, uh, pronounced your last name right. Uh, you're, uh, you're doing great, but it's pronounced as Sula Maweje. Maweje, okay. No, there's no, nothing more uh, frustrating than people pronouncing your last name wrongly. I have it always in one uh, Polish television. Whenever they invite me, they always butcher my last name. Even Polish? Sometimes in one show, they said it in three different ways. Okay. But yeah, thank God I got married. Now they can pronounce my husband's last name <laughs> well. Do they get it right? They, actually, they get it right because it's very really? easy for Polish okay. people to pronounce this name. Okay. So, okay. At thank, least you, that. thank you, Herman. Okay, but going back <laughs> to our podcast. Uh, Sula is a country director for Safe Place for Kenya. He's an activist for HIV and um, AIDS uh, right, people rights. And as he says, he's a human. And our second guest is Masi from Zimbabwe, who is a global director for the Gym Academy for the Safe Place International, which is a leadership academy uh, for people, uh, for the community of Safe uh, Place International. She is a human rights activist and an executive director for Pachelu um, program, which is LGBTQI plus program 
in uh, Africa. So welcome very much, Masi, as well. I'm happy to be here. Guys, we are meeting with you today to discuss about a very sensitive topic. And as I spoke with people from Safe Place International, they uh, illuminated me with so much knowledge about LGBTQI plus rights. And today we were going to focus about the situation in Africa, where you two are. Uh, Masi, you uh, are originally from Zimbabwe. However, you do not live there anymore. You live in South Africa. Sula is from Uganda. He couldn't live there. He lives in Kenya right now. So I would like to start with actually your personal stories to ask you about those moments that you decided that you have to leave your countries, that you have to flee, that you cannot, as LGBTQ people, stay in the country. And tell us a little bit about the situation of LGBTQ people in your country. Masi, shall we start with you? Thank you so much. And thank you again for, for this platform. So as you have said, uh, I was born in Yashashakata, um, in Zimbabwe. And I grew up in a very homophobic uh, family. Uh, at the age of eight, I knew I was different. And I used to call myself a boy when I was growing up. Uh, whenever we went to the departmental store to look for clothes for me to wear, I'd go straight to the boys' stuff and I'd, I'd feel comfortable wearing the, <laughs> the boys' clothes. Uh, so it happened that um, when I came out, I had my uncles, uh, my mom's brothers, uh, extended family, because in Zimbabwe, we've got this thing of extended families coming to stay together. Uh, they used to rape me. I need to be very vague about it. And they used to abuse me. And they used to, it was more like corrective rape of you want to think like you're a boy. Uh, it didn't stop for a long time. And at the age of 13, I ran away from home and went and stayed with my, my friend, then friend. First, I was given shelter with an LGBTIQ organization in Zimbabwe. Uh, I wouldn't name their name because they didn't give me the right to do that. And um, I stayed there until my high school was finished. And at that time, uh, my friend then got married before me and my ticket staying in a house was more like uh, it has expired because I used to stay on a tab because we used to stay together. I had then had to go back home and ask them to take me back home. And the catch for them to take me home um, I was very intelligent. I had to go into university. Um, my first year of doing hospitality and tourism is the year that they forced me to get married um, to my, my kid's dad. Um, it was very difficult for me. 2005, I recall, was the worst year. I gave birth to my daughter in 2004 still going to university and coming back home. But 2005 was the most uh, horrendous year that I had. And sexually, I wasn't attracted to the men because it was a forced marriage. It was something that was organized by the family. I had to. Uh, my kids' dad then had to expose me. 
uh, to the family to say, hey, I think I've stayed with her for the past year, like a full year without me going to school and coming back. Uh, because each and every semester, I'll be much more comfortable at school because it took three, four months at a semester for me to come back. And he said, I can count how many times I've had sexual intercourse with her. And she has told me that she's not attracted to men. I don't feel like I can be with her anymore. And that's how I got out of that relationship, marriage. Lobola was paid. Lobola is a bride price that people pay in Zimbabwe. And everything was done in the, the right way. But me being shunned out of that family also gave my family that I come from a bad name. Um, 2000 and, uh, 2007 was the year that I decided uh, um, I want out. I want out of Zimbabwe. I want, I just want to be able to get to a safe place whereby I can become a mom. I can get money uh, to fend myself, to fend for myself and be able to get my daughter from Zimbabwe to come to South Africa. I moved out of Zimbabwe without knowing anyone in South Africa. Uh, I just knew South Africa with LGBTIQ rights. On, on paper, we are allowed, we are accepted. <laughs> it was a roller coaster, if I should say, uh, of not knowing what you're going to eat the next day. Uh, what's going to happen to you? I was lucky to get into a hand of uh, a loving woman at that time that was old enough to give me shelter. And I was stuck at the train station uh, and she came along and she's like, uh, what are you doing? Like, I'm waiting for someone to pick up my phone. I just came from Zimbabwe. No, you can come and stay by me. And when you when that person picks up the phone, then you can go and stay with that person. Up until now, <laughs> I've never met that person from 2007, and I am not documented here in South Africa. Um, let's cut the whole story short. After 15 years of me being separated from 2007, uh, last year on the 1st of June was when I was able to hold my baby, who is now 19, she just turned 19 last week, uh, but it was... I still punish myself for leaving my daughter and I thank God every time when I ask it, did something happen to me? Like what happened to me? Uh, her answer is uh, no, nothing happened to me. But I missed 15 years of my daughter's life and that's how the situation in zimbabwe is lgbtiq people in zimbabwe are not accepted they are condemned they are secluded from the community and we just don't have a space some do live in fear of coming out that's how you get to be in a forced marriage and some that are are radical are now renting for themselves and doing sex work in Zimbabwe um, for them to be able to fend for themselves because the families have, have shunned them. Some like me who wanted to get my education to go maybe further, 
have been deprived of that because of my sexuality and i can say i've made south africa my home but it's really not home that is another issue for another episode maybe but my journey to come to south africa was not what i wanted but it was a need for me because i needed to be alive i needed to be safe and i needed to have a safe space for my daughter so yeah Masi, thank you very much for sharing with us to this um, very, I have to say, touching uh, story and, and very brave from your side. Are you now with your daughter, daughter permanently or at least seeing each other frequently? I can, I can call her. I'm staying with her now. And just come and show your face. Uh, that is from... She, she's, not a, she's, she's not a fan of this. Uh, so that's, that's Caitlin, that's my Hi. daughter. Uh, so I'm permanently staying with her, although the dad, sorry, although the dad um, is like uh, constantly asking for her back because of documentation here, she's not doing anything and she's just sitting idle at home. And she has made the decision of I'm now of age, I'm not going to be with my dad anymore. So that is Master's story. That's also brave of her. Yeah, she's she's now she's now become like wherever I go, like with activism and everything. She's now like my strongest ally and my biggest cheerleader. And that's one thing that I can say the Dream Academy and Safe Place International did for me, and I'm so proud of now being a mom slash dad to my daughter and she can accept me and call me daddy sometimes uh, or sometimes she can call me mommy. So yeah, that's what I got from that. Thank you. A brave daughter of a brave mom. Masi, we're going to come back to you very soon. I just wanted to ask almost the same question to Sula. Sula, how, how was your journey? How was the, this moment that you decide that you want to leave Uganda? I, I'm assuming the laws uh, in Uganda are very, very um, harsh on uh, LGBTQ people. So what was your story behind it? Uh, thank you so much. Uh, my name <clears throat> is Sula Mawije, pronounce he, him his. I'm uh, a Ugandan uh, queer person that is currently uh, uh, a refugee uh, in Nairobi, Kenya. Um, so, uh, I mean, as you mentioned, uh, like from Uganda, as we know, currently we do have an anti-homosexuality bill that is inactive, that was, uh, uh, that was enacted uh, recently in May this year. Uh, so, like coming to Kenya, it's not something that you get to prepare yourself. It's it's not something that, you know, I do wish, you know, coming, coming here, you, you know, as my colleague Nyasha was speaking, I was choking on my words because I was like, I, you know, uh, I, I could get to uh, get uh, be in a moment getting to remember how it how it's hard for queer persons to flee and go to other countries and be stateless. And even in those countries, they're still uh, facing challenges. So uh, myself, I grew up in a very a religious background it was um, a very diverse uh, religious background my mom was a catholic my dad was a muslim uh, so we used to practice both religions at home 
I used to go to the mosque. I used to go to the church. But at an early age, I I started, you know, feeling different at, uh, uh, of how our other boys were, like in primary school. Uh, and I used to be called names. I used to be called a gully boy. And then at a young age, I used to come back and tell my mom, you know, they're calling me names because uh, I'm the only son of my parents. And uh, growing up, I was like a trophy child um, in, uh, in Africa or I think in uh, in families like a man, a uh, boy is always regarded as the heir to the family. So I was always uh, regarded as the heir to my dad, uh, to my uh, daddy's lineage. So I was supposed to, you know, uh, my dad used to uh, uh, wash me. My dad used to love me so much. And uh, so I used to come back home and tell about my my mom how I was bullied at school, how I was called names. My, my mom used to just tell me like, you know, that's how you are. There is nothing wrong with you. Uh, just leave just leave them alone and then i continued like going uh i finished my primary then went to uh went to uh, high school but then before that uh so also my dad was uh, a man who used to show love differently uh uh it's someone that um used to uh be was an abusive man uh, uh to my mom to my uh many moms that i had and also to my uh, to also the, uh, my other siblings and me as well and this is a way that, you know, uh, in an African setting, like it would be like you're trying to uh, uh, sure or punish a, a kid, but then to a point where a kid gets uh, bruises or gets scars, that is abuse. It's now that I'm going, I'm, I'm starting to learn that that was not love. He had a different way of showing love, but I knew he loved me, someone that would show me off in his friends and all that. Uh, so when I got to high school, uh, there was a pressure I was in my adolescence, like there was a pressure to just, you know, be a man because there was still this bullying. I was doing MDD, music, dance and drama in school. And most of the boys were like, why are you like a girl? Why are you hanging out with girls? You need to be like the boys. You need to play a football. You need to be, play soccer. And I'm like, I don't love soccer. So like I felt pressured as a boy in high school to just feel, you know, to just feel like a man. As I stepped, I, I, you know, coming, having a, a, a religious background, I started asking myself and also praying to God. I just pray I don't be that person because uh, there were already rumors or we, I had people who were behaving like uh, like women and they are men. They were, they were satanic. They were demonic. So I, I, every time that I would pray, I would tell God, please don't make me that person. I just don't want to be that person. I will try whatever I can to just be a man, like to just be like the other boys. So I, I, I remember like uh, my, my fellow, uh, you know, uh, my fellow classmates, we are talking about, uh, uh, you know, their encounters with, uh, with sex uh, and girls. And then I was very blank. I didn't have anything to contribute, you know, to the conversation. And then I, I kept on, you know, asking one of the boys, like, how do I, you know, get to hit on a girl? And because uh, I felt like, you know, the pressure to just, you know, feel in, be, uh, be uh, included in, in that sample as a boy. And um, I remember the boy, you know, explaining to me, this is how you hit on a girl and everything. But in my head, I was like, you know, I, I was I was more I was attracted uh, to uh, to boys because uh, I was uh, staying in a uh, in a, I was staying at school like it was like a dormitory. So I didn't go back to school. I used to be uh, to be staying at school. Uh, they had like hostels. And then uh, so time moved on and then I finished my high school. And then I, uh, my parents uh, passed on. Uh, then I had to be moved to my uncle, who was a very staunch Muslim man, was very staunch. 
and he's someone who was a imam in in the area where uh in the area where he was staying or where we were staying and um so uh, i was meant to uh learn um islam because uh, when i was staying at my parents uh play, place uh you know uh, religion is something that you know we would practice we would practice both religions but then we were not staunch about them like it was not something that was forced on uh, my siblings and i so like but when i went to my my uh my uncle like i was i was told you need to you know you need to learn and then i remember um, that was uh the time that we, uh, i was in my high school uh, s4 uh break and then um i remember uh, so one of my one of um, one of um, my cousin uh ha I happened to go to uh know uh get through my phone and checked uh you know my conversation with uh some uh some person and then decided to tell the mom that sula is uh chatting with this boy and these are the messages and that's how i got in trouble so my uncle was like you know we cannot house you anymore we cannot uh you can you cannot be the uh, the person that you know the community is take is talking about you cannot get to tarnish the reputation of this family and also uh, also uh you know you're a disgrace to your dad so my uh, my uncle chased me out of the house i went to kampala because by then we were staying in a very remote in the village so i had to move to kampala stay with my friends and then uh, when i moved to kampala the situation was very bad uh, and then in 2016 uh in march i moved to uh to Nairobi uh, so you know uh, so leaving home thinking that you know I'm going to have a better life in Kenya but it wasn't you know it wasn't la la because I got to sleep outside the UN for two weeks um, just just uh, outside of I had no one to I had nowhere to sleep I had no food and they would take us inside the UN premises and they would ask us uh, you have to go to the camp and then uh, so they are camp the refugee camps which are in the which are in Kakuma, which are very which are, which have hostile um, hostile um, environment and also the people who are in in Kakuma they are very hostile because they have different uh, refugees from different nationalities and different beliefs and backgrounds. So, and these are people that are are being uh, are, are being uh, are put together with uh, queer refugees. So I told them I can't go to the camp because of uh, what is already happening in the camp. So they I had to stay there for two weeks. Then later I was registered and then uh so I, I started integrating into the community but it was hard you know leaving home and knowing you know where to uh knowing where to place your foot but being here like you're a foreigner you don't you don't know where to start from so it, it was a very um uh, hard experience and then um in 20 uh in 2019 i was able to uh join our a community-based organization which called the nature network that helped me to take me in and uh, they were able to uh, offer me uh, oh, they have a safe a safe space and also they use a family-based therapy to get to redefine what family means to us because uh, you know coming from a background where my own relatives you know uh, disowned me and told me I'm not part of their family and having you know a place which is a safe space and trying to redefine what family means to us amongst ourselves we do have, you know, figures that a mother figure, a father figure, a father, a father figure, and also sisters as as, as well. So as time went on, uh, by then the gov, uh, sorry, the UN was supporting us like with financial assistance, 
and then uh during uh the i think that, that was during that uh, trump administration so a lot of funds was cut so so many so many of us were cut from that uh that assistance so i had to um to do whatever i can so that i can be able to sustain uh in the in the urban uh urban urban setting which is nairobi so i i had to i engaged in sex work just to be able to survive in nairobi just to be able to you know to pay bills because it was very hard uh, no one was going to come to your rescue until uh, yourself you're going to be able to make a living and be able to sustain yourself and um so uh, for the time i've been here i've been um i've been harassed by the police i've been arrested and um uh, i've been um i've been in uh quite uh, difficult you know uh, situations as uh, the area uh, the shelter where i stayed has been raided uh several times and um you know um this is something that you know i don't wish uh, for anyone uh, to ever happen because uh, being a refugee is a very shitty shitty um situation because you don't have a safeguard you don't have anyone that you know even just waking up every day you have to be like wow like i need to go to in this world and i need uh, to present myself deem myself the way that i, I see myself because you you're a foreigner, you're stateless, and you just have to exist. Even, you know, when you try to build rapport with people that you are, live around, the local host community, it's still very hard because you, these two identities, being a refugee and also being queer, it's going to be very hard. There is going to be limitation of what you can get. I've been here for, um, I think I'm, I'm terrible with math, but I've been here for since 2016 to 2030, 2023. I think that would come to seven or eight if I'm good with my math and uh, you know uh, I, I, I'm mandated I have a refugee status in the country but then even with this refugee status there's so many limitations that I cannot get uh, when it comes to health services when it comes to uh, uh, getting job uh, like job op opportunities and also just you know even uh, opening bank accounts and also enjoying the like privileges that you know other citizens because our refugee status is also equivalent to uh someone with a national with with a national id who is a citizen of kenya but this is something that is on paper but then uh you know i don't know how the system works but yeah it's, it's just very hard even with you know uh when when Massey was saying he's not documented i'm like i'm documented in kenya where i am but you know still i don't i'm limited to what i i can access every day and um i think it was in 2020 2021 i joined self place as their i joined as a student and later was uh employed as their student uh, as they are as their country director in kenya for the program of uh, the dream academy and this has helped me you know to be able to give access to my community to give access to so many other queer persons that don't have platforms you know for their voices to be heard and to also be able to uh have a place a safe space which is uh can be accessed virtually uh, and also connect with other, you know, stories of queer persons that are around the globe that are, you know, facing, you know, the same challenges, you know, it could be displacement, it could be uh, this, uh, being disowned in your family, so that we can come together and also use talents that we, can, we do have and be able to uh, uh, be self-reliant. Yes. 
Sula, I think this is a wonderful moment to actually advertise a little bit Safe Place International, which are our very dear friends. So we're going to take a short break so all our listeners can hear from uh, Rachel, actually, who's, uh, who's the CEO right now of uh, Safe International and uh, Safe Place International. And for those who uh, are watching us on YouTube or on Spotify, they will be able also to see uh, some pictures from your programs. So Safe Place International and we're back after the break. The LGBTQI plus community fights for space in this world. Space to live safely, to love freely, to be authentically. But for all the progress we've made, we're moving backwards. Today, we see radical legislation, homophobia, and an emboldened culture of bias in countries around the world. For queer persons, the simple act of living puts them at risk. There is a global community of displaced, marginalized people whose lives must be protected, their humanity affirmed, not only because it's just, but because the world is better for it. Our institutions and communities are calling out for their perspectives and visions for change. At Safe Place International, we believe that centering and amplifying the voices of marginalized communities is necessary to build a world that's safer, more inclusive, and filled with joy. To do so, we cultivate ecosystems of safety, healing, and collective growth with and for an intersectional community of LGBTQI displaced persons to affirm the leaders that only they can be. Wherever they are in the world, wherever they are in their journey, the path forward looks different for everyone. So we meet people on their terms, from standing up community centers in cities to reaching remote areas through technology, from welcoming someone who was recently displaced to supporting them as their goals change. At every step, we work together with kindness and generosity to ensure that everyone in our community feels connected, seen, and understood. The core of our work centers on equipping our community members to find their purpose and thrive in their new environments. But we know that can't happen without a foundation of safety and stability. We work side by side with global and local partners to protect people with access to safe housing, food, supplies, and critical information. When there's a need, we rise to meet it every time. From there, we can look to the future. The Dream Academy, our 10-week intensive virtual course, focuses on leadership development, socio-emotional learning, and job skills training. Led by members of the LGBTQI refugee community and available in two languages, the Dream Academy connects participants to purpose, power, and the new possibilities they need to heal from individual and collective traumas. And those experiences at the Dream Academy make a lifetime of difference. Grounded in their purpose, our community members embark on their own paths. They find transformative opportunities and assume roles of power and influence in their institutions and communities, uplifting the people and spaces around them. Whatever path they take or make, they pave the way to acceptance and celebration for the generations that follow. The world is made better by their voices, their dreams, and their joy. And we've only just begun. Okay, welcome back everyone to the second part of this episode. Uh, I have a question for uh, Sula. Can you hear me, Sula? But yeah. cool. But before that, I want to shock Sonia a little bit. So okay. I did some digging about the origins of the new anti-LGBTQ plus law in Uganda. Did you know that in 2009, it was nicknamed Kill the Gays? 
law. Right. They were going to do it in 2009, and then they stopped it. So I did you see, that, so no. kill the gays. Can you imagine in the parliament people like we have this law? It's called kill the gays. <sighs> I, I I don't know what to say. To that. Yeah. So my question is to Sula is how did the, this law? Uh, how did the society in Uganda receive this law? Did they support it? If not, I know that people supported and people not. But how did like the general? society received this law? Uh, uh, thank you so much. Uh, so, um, uh, how did the, uh, the society receive uh, the anti-homosexuality bill? Uh, bill? So this, uh, like uh, in, 20 in 2023, it's not the first time like this bill was signed. Uh, so we go back like in uh, 2009, when this bill was called Kill the Bill. Uh, and then, uh, so people, uh, people, the parliament and also the president felt like this was not, uh, this was not something that he would uh, second. So they took back the bill and then it was introduced, uh, I think if I'm certain it was around 2014. And then this bill, uh, by that time it had, uh, it didn't have quorum. So uh, people went and uh, activists, in, queer activists went in, in court and petitioned uh, about this bill, uh, how in, inhuman it was. And uh, also getting to see how this bill was passed uh, because it lacked quorum. Uh, of the, there were less MPs in, in parliament that voted uh, uh, for this law to be tabled uh, and then be sent to the uh, sorry to the president to uh, sign upon it. So uh, it, this uh, the law was uh, was uh, was valid uh, was null and void. Uh, actually, like uh, recently in two thousand twenty three, so we started having like conversation in Uganda where people were were talking about this bill. So, but then how they brought it was a very smart way. Because uh, you know how they get to uh, pr uh, drive a narrative that uh, queer persons um, are pedophiles, queer persons are rapists, queer persons are a threat to the cis, uh, to the to the family setting, the society, uh, heterosexual, you know, families. So they started, you know, projecting different, you know, images. You know, they started doing it with uh, different social media campaigns, and this we are all portraying, uh, you know. Uh, a queer person that were uh, that were rapists, queer persons were uh, were uh, pedophiles, queer. So like this kind of narrative kind of fired up the community, you know, to be like, you know, this is not something I believe in. This is not something the religion speaks about. So in that, even before the law went up to uh, the parliament to be tabled and then sent to the uh, to to the president, Yoel uh, Kagutam Seven, uh, there was already a bias and there was a lot a lot of uh, you know. Uh, backlash within the community within the citizens of of kenya because they had drive this narrative of uh, the stereotyping around queer persons that queer persons are evil queer persons are rapists and queer persons are, are pedophiles and this is not who i am i mean uh, i'm not that person i also condemn you know people who are pedophiles i condemn people who are uh, child molesters that is not who i speak as a person that is not uh, how i see uh, my community but then the narrative was driven and then from there we had churches that were in part of that and uh, so it was like uh, i don't know like it was a smart way how they drove the narrative and before even it go to the parliament already the uh, the citizen were like yes this is something that we're going to go behind uh we're going to go behind even if it's going to kill someone else but this is not some this is something that is un uh, un ugandan this is not something that we uh, we believe in uh, as ugandan so before even it got to the president signing it recently in May, 
it it was there was already this narrative and also the bias and the, a lot of fire that was built and anger that was built within the uh, the Ugandan citizen. Wow. Uh, Sula, you mentioned um, the involvement of the church actually in passing the law and uh, joining uh, this narrative. Uh, I mean, I, I guess this is something that uh, is probably present in uh, several African countries. I am actually curious from both uh, of you, um, from, from you and from Masi, uh, how do you see the church's engagement in the, like, pushing even farther the anti-gay laws and, and discrimination of uh, LGBTQI people uh, in, uh, in Africa in general? Uh, uh, thank you so much. Uh, so, uh, like religion and also culture, uh, those are the main uh, main factors that are used uh, in East Africa, like in East Africa and also uh, in Africa as well, like as factors to get to say that this is something that is un-African. But when we go down um, before colonization, we in uh, like where I come from, I come from the Buganda Kingdom. We have uh, uh, we have one of uh, one of the king who is who is um, I'm forgetting his name by but this king was uh practiced homosexuality right and this is something that you know they you uh, are the bagandas or people or like the tribe that i'm, I'm from they they will aware of uh this habit that was practiced by their king but this is not something you know some people get to say you know and they always get to say this was you know a western behavior but then even before colonization happened in uganda there was still you know uh, we, we practiced homosexuality even within the communities like because uh, Buganda kingdom is one of the uh, uh, one of the biggest kingdoms like in East Africa like it's very known it's still even uh, being uh, respected even until to now and this is something that has uh, some has some has some uh, you know has some uh, you uh, has some experiences or has some attachment to homosexuality but this is not something that people get to say. So, but when people, I, I, re, I'm, I'm usually very, uh, surprised with, or shocked even when people say like, this is not, uh, Uganda. This is not what we believe. This is an African, but this is something that was practiced. But just because we didn't have the right vocabulary to get to say, you know, this is, this is, this is homosexuality, and then the fact that you know, even with the colonial laws, like it's something that we didn't know about. But then because of the division that you know, colonization brought in our countries. Uh, it kind of fueled up more of how you know our own our own citizen you know get to see uh uh queer persons in their countries so uh, it's something that you know came back way back it's not something that uh, you know uh people get to say like this is un-african and this is you know unreligious because most of the time we, when we hear uh, before even the tabling of the bill in uganda they also get to consult uh the the clergy those are the religious leaders to get to know about their uh, opinion about the laws so they are being consulted even before it's being taken to the parliament and then to the, uh to the president himself so these are those are big factors or big uh bodies that uh get to affect how uh queer persons you know rights are being you know uh, affected you know in in uganda and i think uh I'll 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 um I'll, I'll I'll switch to my friend uh, Masi. Uh, thank you so much, Sula. So uh, in Zimbabwe, we are a Christian uh, nation, whereby uh, 
of course traditional traditional religion and the culture and everything also works negatively as an impact in the LGBTIQ spaces. Uh, we have switched from LGBTIQ. I don't think there's any organization in Zimbabwe besides the oldest organization that is girls that says gays and lesbians. But the other organizations that are coming out that are LGBTIQ, they use the key population. Uh, that's the word that they, they, they use every time. Uh, exorcism has been seen as something that has been very much happening to our LGBTIQ uh, siblings back home in Zimbabwe, whereby if you are a lesbian, a gay, they'll take you to the churches, apostolic faith missions, and uh, they get you to try and be exorcised from being LGBTIQ. Uh, there's also traditional leaders that are there in Zimbabwe, Sangomas that are traditional healers. They tell you, oh, you are two-spirited, you have a, an ancestor that is male that is on you and you are female so those are the kind of like dynamics that are pulling you to be who you are like a lesbian but really you're not supposed to to, to be a lesbian we have the president of zimbabwe there is kenan sondido banana he was uh, named sondido because he was gay um he was the first prime minister of zimbabwe uh after the colonization of course when we had said we got independent, uh, he got also shunned from the community. He got asked for being gay. And his last um, time on earth, he had to spend it in England, if I'm not mistaken, uh, because he was not wanted and he had been uh, stripped of his dignity in Zimbabwe. The late President Robert Mugabe has made it clear that I would love to see two gay men have a, a baby. If not, then I will never give any rights to the LGBTIQ community. Uh, as we speak right now, uh, our then president, right president that we have right now, has made it also publicly known when he was at the UN conferences, when he's in any spaces and he's asked about the LGBTIQ community, and he says, I stand with my religion and my culture. Same applies to the opposition party. Um, president is also made it so clear to say hey i will not accept it so with the zimbabwean part talking about as i am zimbabwean lgbtiq is not accepted is not wanted and there is uh, now a minimum of two years that someone can get arrested not for being caught in the act of doing anything but for my dressing as i i am comfortable dressing as a man they arrest you and say you are affiliated. So if they see me wearing some boxers, a brief, I get arrested for two years uh, for that. So religion, uh, pastors, they've shunned all of our LGBTIQ community members in praise and worship that have got their own talents and that want to praise God. Some of them that are uh, clergy pastors that are coming now here to South Africa and saying we want to be having a church that is inclusive of everyone else, including the LGBTIQ. Mm -hmm. um, Masi, yeah. uh, I, I, when you mentioned the exorcisms, uh, I mean, in moments like this, I'm always amazed how the Catholic world is uh, normally so happy to follow Pope's directives, but when it comes to uh, gay people, they oppose him completely, as if suddenly he makes mistakes in his judgment, right? So when he embraces gay people, 
the church in Zimbabwe provides exorcisms on uh, on gay people. Uh, church ah. in in my uh, Poland, uh, they don't do that, but they are very happy to take you to those classes and explain you how uh, the fact that you consider yourself a lesbian is a disease and what? they can cure you, right? It's not a general uh, situation, but it happens in many churches still in a European Union country. Uh, so it, it always amazes me that something like this is, is still uh, happening right now and, and that we're, we're taking it so, you know, randomly, whatever works with our beliefs, yes, then once the Pope is the highest authority uh, in the world, and then the, the, the moment later, well, like, he makes mistakes, you know, he's just a human being, he makes mistakes. For um, always, sorry, I'm yeah, very happy no. that you brought up the, uh, the, the Catholic. I was born raised Catholic, and I never found uh, my seat in the church at any given time. Because as a young kid, uh, instead of going to church wearing a dress, I used to go wearing my pants and everything. And I should tell you, here in South Africa, uh, no Catholic priest uh, can be able to... Uh, I don't know what the English word is. Uh, Sula, maybe you can help me. Uh, if I want to get married in the Catholic Church, I'm, I'm not going to get a Catholic priest to do that for me uh, because the Vatican has not approved that and uh when we spoke about uh the other time hey we saw the pop wearing a rainbow flag on him what about that how is it now bringing upon everything then it's there in europe where he's doing that but here in africa we do not allow anything of that sort to happen and for you to tell you you need to sit at the back of the church not in front not take any a part in any activities of church because of who you are, you are now misleading the church and the whole congregation uh, with you being LGBTIQ. For me, also, always the question is, is it the religion or the interpretation of the religion? Because, for example, in uh, in Islam, I grew up as a Muslim. I'm not anymore, but the, it's written there that if you do these acts, you are forbidden from Islam. You, you should get killed. I don't know about Christianity. Mm -hmm. Is it written there or just because you are saying the Pope yeah. is okay and then these people are saying... Now, now we're really going into a very <laughs> dangerous territory because what, what is religion? What is the interpretation of religion, right? Uh, for me, it's like what's written there. Okay, at least they can say it's but like written. Even what was written was selected yeah. at certain point of history mm -hmm. that now we're going to, in, in Christianity, we're going to take those four mm. books and they will be the, the main one, the ones we will obey, right? among many others so they chose the ones that were the dominant or mm. the or the ones that got most um most most votes at the time i would say right uh from uh, from the apostles and the and the sorry the the christian community mm. so uh, very dangerous territory <laughs> to go there <laughs> actually um yeah and i think maybe if we can add on to that is when the scriptures are selected to speak about thieves about a lot of things that are people that are doing the food that we used to 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 to, to not be allowed to eat in the bible let's take Le leviticus and let's now talk about the new testament whereby jesus is turning water into wine uh, there is a contradiction in everything in the bible but they choose the, the doctrines and the script that they want to to move their motive or the emotion that they want to use mm -hmm. at that time mm -hmm. Uh, so, guys, I would like to ask both of you, 
How much better is the situation for LGBTQI plus people in the countries you uh, escaped to, so in South Africa and in, um, in Kenya? We heard a little bit about how difficult it was for both of you at, at the beginning of, of coming to those countries. Can, can you tell us a little bit broader what is the situation uh, for LGBTQI people in uh, your new home countries? Um, as I have explained to you that from 2007 up to today, I'm not properly documented. Uh, South Africa on paper, of course, it says, hey, we accept every LGBTIQ person that comes through. But um, the Home Affairs, the Department of Home Affairs does not give any documentation unless you prove to be LGBTIQ. Um, you have to prove to be lesbian or you have to prove that you're gay. And the moment I, prom I say I've got a kid, I'm already out of being lesbian because you've got a daughter. And then if you are not gay, if you are not a drag person that then across dresses, then you're not gay enough for them to give you uh, documentation. As what Sula has spoken about with uh, the access to health, we have difficulties whereby we've got a lot of, of our community members that default from uh, their medication, those that are HIV positive, because at times, they do not feel like going to that same hospital or cleaning again because they've been discriminated. We've got trans men and trans women that are going to the public hospitals um, trying to get their hormones and it's questions after questions. It's them being asked to strip naked. It's them, a lot of things that are happening in these hospitals that they now stay or shun away and look for organizations that uh, can be able to give them um, medication. Same applies to jobs. When you're not documented, you cannot get a job. When you're not documented, you cannot get um, uh, education or even further your education to just get a general GED. So you find yourself uh, being exploited by maybe different restaurants that you're working in and offering you lesser money for your for your services. So in, in terms of South Africa, a lot of homophobia that is now mixed with xenophobia, that it's we don't want Zimbabweans. That is the that that is the thing that is going on right now. We do not want any Zimbabweans in South Africa, irregardless of if you're LGBTIQ, if you're just a, a economic migrant or refugee. We just don't want you here. So now it's has left us coming to a safe haven, to a greener pasture, to say we can get protection, we can be ourselves, and we can live our lives to the fullest. To when this time comes that we have been given what where am i going to go to so we are now displaced in a country that we felt like uh, we are going to be harnessed and we are going to be uh safeguarded in by by it mm -hmm. sula how about you and the situation in kenya right now uh so uh my situation is um i would i would want to sit here and be like you know amongst uh, the thousands of refugees, queer refugees who are here. I'm lucky or I'm privileged, but then if all of us are not safe, there, there is no, uh, there is no, uh, you know, plight or there is no pride of me saying like, you know, I'm privileged or I have access to so many things in terms of like, I'm now working with Safe Place and, you know, other organizations. So it's very hard for, you know, queer refugees, uh, you know, to exist, you know, in the country where, you know, even the system that are, are supposed to be, uh protecting you like in uh so we do have a refugee um a refugee uh a refugee act 
that is supposed to help uh, refugees integrate and be like any other uh, to be like any other citizen in the country access the same services health services and also job opportunity but it, this is something that is on paper but when it comes to uh the reality this is not something that is happening because we had cases of lgbt persons uh people that have been my friends that have died just you know not able to access you know health services people who have committed suicide outside the UNHCR. And uh, this is someone that, you know, just wanted to have a meal and didn't have food in the house and came to cry, you know, came to just show how, uh, you know, ask for food from the UN. And this person lost, you know, lives. You have instances of people, uh, refugees, queer refugees who have been burnt in Kakuma camp, uh, people who have been bruised, uh, kids who have been killed in the refugee camps. Uh, so uh, it's very hard, uh, you know, um, I usually say, you know, um, uh you know uh myself you know uh uh life here it has not been easy to, uh, for me even until now because i mean waking up every day going into the world and you've you've been here the longest you have a refugee status that, that that is supposed to allow you have access to so many things but then every day you have to uh wake up and be like oh god oh god i just don't want to die in this struggle because uh, there is a, a lot of challenges around uh, like from just accessing health services and also accessing like you know public you know services just someone uh, registering a bank account and then with these statuses when you're documented there is a guarantee that you know you're supposed to get or mandated to get them but that's not what is actually happening uh people's houses have been raided trans people have been uh stripped when they're uh, being arrested by the police and uh, with the new influx that is coming from Uganda due to the anti-LGBT uh, homosexuality bill that passed in May uh, the government is not registering uh, queer persons it's give it's it's frustrating them so if someone gets to go there they get to frustrate you but then if uh, there is a, if uh, another refugee or an asylum seeker from still the same country but it says is a political asylee they're going to be able to speed uh, their process. And I'm like, what is happening? Because I, uh, I work there as a part-time interpreter. And you hear cases of, you know, your fellow, you know, uh, colleagues. They are denied to be registered. And just, you know, having documentation. And that is something, you know, we, we usually like uh, we face. Because if you don't have documentation, there are so many things that are also going to be uh, limited uh, from just uh, being, because you're going to be, uh, there is a, uh, a habit of the police usually are uh, raiding us and also asking us even communities where they we get to stay why you are why are you running from uganda there is no war in uganda what are you doing here unless you're the queer person that brought your your vice you brought your homosexuality to their can to our country and um this uh, this very year uh the start of this very year there were there was um there was um a case of an lgbt uh activist a kenyan Queer, queer activist that was killed and then there were around conversations around the public and there was a lot of discrimination like the discrimination uh, was caused because this uh, uh, this dying of this activist caused a lot of attention it was published in every news outlet so this increased a lot of homophobia and transphobia in the countries and just imagine this is not just for the queer uh, Kenyans but also to refugees who don't have even a safety net where to run to or you know stateless so and then recently there were a lot of challenges uh, a lot of you know um uh uh there was a lot of uh, there was um, a supreme court ruling that gave uh queer 
queer organization a right to association this also uh, came with a it was good for the community but then it brought a lot of backlashes because the uh, people uh, the way that people uh, the community interpreted it they felt like they were legalizing same sex in Kenya and uh, currently there is a lot of uh, you know demonstration and lgbt demonstrations of, that are led by uh, by religious leaders that is from uh, christianity and also from islam that are saying uh, persons who are queer they don't belong in kenya kenya is a christian country is a very religious country and we will never uh, let this uh, vice uh, happen in this in our country and then just imagine that is you know the trauma that comes with uh, hearing someone marching uh, when you're in your house and then telling you that they're going to burn you they're going to kill you and then this is someone who is a refugee but just take it to someone who is you know a queer a queer kenyan who is a national so there is a lot of you know on the same the level that you're going to be facing you know trauma and also the fear that you're going to have you know to just exist because we have trans persons who are still even have their dead names on the un document someone is wants to be referred at dorin but it still has you know sula on their documents so it's just you know very hard mm. the government is not you know allow is not uh, giving access like uh, there is a lot of you know even discrimination within the entity that's supposed to work with refugees so there is nothing that is happening you know uh, i would uh, i would say you know out of a million refugees i'm just happy to even have this opportunity to be on this platform but there are other you know folks of mine that don't have, even have this kind of access this kind of a privilege to just be able to have a space to uh, uh be able to or uh, have their stories be told have like uh, have spaces to you know just have access to people get to know what is actually happening you know to queer refugees are uh, in Kenya uh, Sula, from everything you're saying and from Masi saying, there's this one uh, actually conclusion coming that you guys are basically being in a doubly hard condition uh, situation, uh, almost like doubly stigmatized, once for being uh, uh, gay people and the second is for being refugees. And it's basically, I'm sorry for saying this, but it sucks to be either uh, or, seriously. And you combine those two very difficult uh, things. So uh, I, I see that it's not only all the struggles that refugees have in their old countries and their new countries, but also this is, there's this extra level for you just because you're homosexual. And this is, an extremely, extremely difficult situation. So I'm wondering if you, you mentioned that there are all of those anti-LGBTQ protests. Do you guys, except for, of course, uh, Safe Place International, are you getting any uh, support from any other movements uh, in your new uh, home countries? Also, what we have done is Safe Place International and the Dream Academy is like we talked about being inclusive of the community. So we've got what we call a strategy. I think it was a very good strategy and something that is good that we do a safe place international of uh, service projects that we do. So with these service projects that we do, we actually get our LGBTIQ community members uh, slash graduates to get into different communities of where they stay. Um, the way we're getting into the communities is we are identifying a lack of resource in that community. 
And how we do that, like we've got uh, soup kitchens. Soup kitchens are like small kitchens in uh, the doubly marginalized communities that cook food for the less privileged, maybe two or three times a week. And we are going in a safe place international and saying we are LGBTIQ, we've got refugees and we've got migrants that are here, but we are here to lend a hand and to help feed the people of your community. So we have seen that it's now uh, creating a good relationship with whoever our community member who goes uh, wearing a yellow jacket or not even a yellow jacket as they say, but they've seen us, they've seen our faces to get that protection from homophobia and xenophobia from the local communities that are there. That is what the first strategy that we have done. We've also gone and introduced ourselves into different organizations that are South African-led organizations and we've said, hey, we are here, we've got our, our community members that are here, they're LGBTIQ, they need one resource, the other resource from different organizations. And we have now seen that now we are claiming spaces uh, in these uh, different organizations whereby we are now being welcomed in the organizations. And that's how we are now building a rapport or building relationships with the local communities, organizations, for them to also be able to be safe spaces also for our community members. Over to you, Sula. And uh, yeah, uh, to, su uh, to supplement on also uh, in Kenya. So as the uh, queer refugee community, we've been able to uh, build, uh, uh, to organize ourselves into, uh, you know, uh, organization, we've been able to build a different uh, community-based organization that gets to address different needs, uh, de uh, depending to uh, different uh, communities that is uh, within the LGBTQ uh, umbrella. So uh, what I do also volunteer for uh, Nature Network, which is a community-based organization, uh, which offers a safe space for queer refugees and also economic empowerment and also advocacy in the country. And also as we are here, we're also uh, are tapping into the local uh, host uh, queer Kenyan organizations that have really been generous enough to show us the way of, uh, you know, how do we get to uh, ad advocate uh, for our rights and also get to uh, act as, you know, uh, fiscal host uh, when we get to ask for uh, different funding to uh, help us, you know, have a better quality living in Kenya. So um, we've been also been able, there is also safe space as well. Uh, so we've been also able to, you know, to tap into the already existing Kenya queer uh, mo uh, movement that is in the country that has really been able to help us shape our, you know, CBOs, because most of the people that are, you know, running these CBOs, community-based organization, are people who learn from job, right? It's someone that is very passionate about what is happening in the, you know, what is happening to, to him and his folks. And then they get to, you know, you get to learn from, from the job. You don't have any experience of running a community uh, or any organization, but then because you're very passionate and you want, you know, to offer a safe space for your colleagues, so you're going to be uh, pushed and work hard and show up so that you can be able to, you know, uh, have uh, uh, help someone else who is just arriving in the country, don't have to sleep outside, have, you know, a safe space for this person. But even with that, uh, even with that organization, you know, these are uh, these uh, community based organizations are underfunded and not supported in any way. So most of the time we are we are uh, we are left, uh, you know, with baggage that, you know, 
these entities that are supposed to support us uh, end up you know uh, they end up uh, uh, not doing their right uh, you know mandates and end up leaving these roles to you know uh, the community based organization yeah this is the first time actually we're covering this uh, topic uh, on the podcast and also to encourage uh, everybody we're gonna have a second episode a follow-up on that uh, with uh, people who are here in Greece where we are right now so we're gonna focus a little bit on the European protection system but yes this is um, this is the first time and I think I mean I was a little bit stressed about this uh, because to to, to be precise, I feel like our knowledge, even like, you know, we have gay friends and it's a diff very different thing to have a gay friend in Europe and yeah. a gay friend who is also a refugee. It, it's not absolutely not the same. The struggle is completely different and not to take away it from our European or American friends it's very hard to compare their fight uh, for recognition for for uh, their rights with the things that you guys uh, are facing right now uh, in Africa being refugees there and this actually leads me to my next question uh, something actually that you Sula pointed out uh, before you mentioned that the relocation system and the resettlement mechanism uh, all those pathways to safety actually failed LGBTQI community. Would you mind telling us more about that? Masi, do you want to add something? Our Yes, our situation is kind of like different from um, Sula's situation. Uh, the reason is because, as I've said on paper, South Africa is deemed to be a safe haven for the refugees and migrants. So the moment that I, I came to South Africa, um, I'm already safe to be safe, right? It's the same. That I'm, I'm good, uh, nothing is going to happen to me because of my sexuality. But as our life goes on every day, like what we spoke about, jobs, um, access to health, access to education, it's limited because you're not documented. Uh, and then when it comes to relocation, there's not really anything of relocation when you are in South Africa, they don't think of relocating you. They don't think of the Department of Home Affairs or the government of South Africa is not uh, providing enough for the refugees and the migrants that are LGBTIQ or any other refugee or migrant. They just say South Africa is safe and everything is good. So I think with our, with our side, on my side, I can tell you like, um, two weeks back i tried to get uh, a a conference that i was supposed to attend and i was supposed to attend this the conference in the united states of course i can't go back home because i don't have a home this has been my home for the past 18 uh 15 years 16 years this year um i went to the consulate of the united states i couldn't get my doc i couldn't get a visa the reason why there is no ties to me in south africa i don't have anything that could maybe make them believe that I would come back to the country. So that is what everyone else is, 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 is facing when it comes to you staying in South Africa and it being deemed as a safe place or a safe haven for refugees and migrants. Rosie, I'm sorry. You're undocumented in South Africa for 15 years. 
How is it possible yes. to be undocumented for 15 years? It is very, very, very possible when it comes to uh, the South Africa uh, laws and uh, the, I think the bylaws, if I can say. Um, we've, I've had people that have, uh, all, uh, have come to South Africa before, way before me, and they're still not documented. They have never been documented. Uh, last last uh, week, my uncle passed away. He was about 10, 10 years in South Africa, not documented. And for the people to get a repatriation for him, they had to go uh, to the South African government and to the Zimbabwean government and say, hey, we need to repatriate this person. They died in South Africa, but they were not documented. So that is how it is. As long as you can find either sex work, grinder, or you can just be a maid in a house and not get that much money that you want. You can get one money from, from hand to mouth, hand to mouth, and you can just get your life going. That is how we are. We have been living in house. That's how we live. And uh, with my, of course, NPO, Pachedu, we have said to each other, we are refugees, we are migrants that are LGBTIQ, that are staying in South Africa. How about we don't look so much into organizational structures and who is going to help us? Why don't we now stick together as a family and help each other within ourselves? So Pachedu means by ourselves, for ourselves. We have had people coming in, oh, I'll give you this much amount, and then they vanish, and that's how we, we are now creating a safe, um, maybe semi-sustainable uh, <laughs> situation for ourselves. Because if I have a five friend, a five euro, and Sula has a five euro, and same applies to you, I can buy, we can buy electricity for Sula, we can buy water for Sula, we can buy food for ourselves. So that's how we've been able to survive and sustain ourselves in this country for this long. Okay. I have something to add. It's not a question. Uh, Masi, do you know this organization called Gays and Lesbians of Zimbabwe? Uh, that is, uh, <laughs> I didn't want to mention it when I ran away ah, okay. when I was still a kid. Uh, that was my first safe haven in mm -hmm. Zimbabwe. Okay. Uh, but because of the lot of race that they used to have at that time, mm -hmm. of now I haven't heard of a lot of race that they have. Uh, but they were kind of like uh, turned tuned down. Is it the right word? Mm -hmm. Tuned down on. We have never had a pride. Let me just put it as this. We've never, they've existed for more than 20 something, 20 okay. odd years. I remember when I was 13, 14, I went there. So I'm now, I'm now turning 40 next year. So they have been there for the longest, but they've been tuned down a bit mm -hmm. uh, because of the race that we used to have. We used to have police brutality. When anyone saw you at the girls', uh, girls um, offices, uh, the police would hit you, the soldiers would be sent on to you. But for now, I haven't heard that much of the the, the police brutality, mm. the government brutality on them. So I do know about them very much. Okay, thank you. I was once a member for, for, for girls as well. Okay. That's it for me. Okay. Masi, Sula, we would very much like to thank you for joining us for this episode. For, first of all, sharing your stories. This is extremely brave of you to to tell your stories up front and uh, advocate so so bravely for uh, human rights for lgbtqi plus rights uh, we are amazed by what you're doing 
Uh, we would like to encourage everybody who's interested in uh, supporting LGBTQI plus rights uh, for refugees specifically uh, to check Safe Place uh, International. We're going to um, add the link to also um, support uh, Masi's Pachelu uh, organization. We're also going to attach a link uh, to, uh, to, to your organization in our show notes. Please join us for our next episode when we, we will continue this um, topic with our guests who are currently in Greece. And we will actually go a little bit more specifically towards uh, transgender people. Thank you very much. And we're going to see you in two weeks. All right. I would like to thank our incredible production team. Yeah, yeah our production so team much. is just amazing. <laughs> Just, uh, more I said than my just one, one up. This, this is it. Like really your whole dictatorship this. will be. Yeah. Well, that's not a real dictatorship, let's be honest. If everything else is free and that's just like a monopoly on the market. Really? Yeah. Well, that's going to be my success because do you know what uh, the trick that the devil did to everyone? What? You know that quote? No. I forgot it. <laughs> Wait, what, what, oh yeah, what's that quote? Intrigued. What's that quote about the devil? That they convinced them that there is no hell or something like this. I'm gonna ah, find it. Ah, yes, well, that, that, that makes sense. You right. see, he did the devil. The biggest trick the devil created was to convince you that he does not exist. Ah, he does not exist. You see, so I convince you that that's the only thing I'm controlling. But wait and see. Oh. oh, oh. <laughs>